Cause we got the alternative energy right. free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network Fifteen thousand eight hundred nuclear weapons spread across fourteen nations. One thousand eight hundred ready to be launched within minutes of a warning. This is not the Cold War, but the present reality, the daily existential threat with which we have learned to live. In this podcast, I describe what has become known as the Humanitarian Initiative, an effort by governments, the Red Cross, and civil society organisations to reawaken the global public to this unparalleled danger and to establish a treaty that outlaws nuclear weapons once and for all. This is Jakob Kellenberger, then President of the International Committee of the Red Cross, or ICRC, addressing the Geneva Diplomatic Corps in 2010. His organisation has become a leading advocate for the complete abolition of nuclear weapons. Today, nations have a historic and unprecedented opportunity to bring the area of nuclear weapons to an end. CICRC calls on states to pursue concrete steps that will lead to a legally binding international agreement to prohibit and eliminate nuclear weapons. In the aftermath of a nuclear attack, no matter the scale or location, Red Cross personnel would be powerless to respond meaningfully. High levels of radioactivity around Ground Zero would severely hamper relief efforts, and the destruction would be simply too vast. Modern-day nuclear weapons would no doubt cause immeasurably more damage than the atomic bombs that hit Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. Close to a quarter of a million people, mostly civilians, perished when the United States detonated two nuclear weapons on Japan seven decades ago. Many tens of thousands more have died in the years since from an ongoing epidemic of cancers caused by the dispersal of radiation. This is Hiroshima, the day after the atom bomb exploded over Japan's seventh largest city and etched its message of doom to an empire. Heat travelling at the speed of light cast a shadow over Hiroshima and over the land of the rising sun. While no nuclear weapon has been used in warfare since then, More than 2,000 have been exploded in the atmosphere, underwater and underground as part of test programs, with devastating consequences for human health and the environment. The most recent nuclear test was in North Korea at the beginning of this year. What started out as a report of an earthquake in North Korea quickly turned into a political earthquake when today that country announced it had just tested a hydrogen bomb. The long period of non-use of nuclear weapons in war has led some to conclude that these ultimate terror devices are a source of peace rather than insecurity. This is despite a litany of well-documented incidents when the world has come within a hair's breadth of nuclear catastrophe. The Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 is but the most infamous example. Eric Schlosser, an investigative journalist and the author of Command and Control, explains the risks. In my mind, there are two existential threats that we face today. One is global warming, which is occurring slowly and may be reversible. The other is nuclear weapons. 
but the detonation of a nuclear weapon is going to be instantaneous and irreversible. Having spent years researching the subject, I think that every one of those weapons is an accident waiting to happen or a potential act of mass murder. Records show that aircraft carrying nuclear weapons have plunged into the ocean. Nuclear-tipped missiles have shot uncontrollably from their silos. A Norwegian weather satellite and even a flock of geese have been mistaken for incoming intercontinental ballistic missiles, nearly triggering nuclear war. How much longer before our luck runs out? In May of 2010, one month after Kallenberger's speech, government representatives gathered at the United Nations in New York for a five-yearly review of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, or NPT. This historic pact aims to halt the spread of nuclear weapons and compel those that possess them to disarm. By 1968, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty was drawn up. Mr President, I hand you the proclamation of the treaty for your signature. Today, 190 nations are parties to the treaty, among them five of the nine nuclear-armed nations, the United States, Russia, the United Kingdom, France and China, the permanent members of the UN Security Council. Nuclear-armed India, Pakistan and Israel have never joined, while North Korea withdrew in 2003 to pursue a nuclear weapons program. Many governments had high hopes in 2010 that the month-long review of the fracturing treaty would mark a turning point for nuclear disarmament. Years of inaction and the collapse of the previous review conference had cast doubt on the treaty's efficacy. Failure to agree on a pathway forward could have proven terminal. At the opening of this year's conference in New York this month, UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon urged all parties to help rid the world of nuclear weapons. The world's people look to you for action. Action to protect them from the destructive power of nuclear weapons. To rein in rising spending on nuclear weapons. To build a safer and more secure world. After weeks of diplomatic wrangling, the parties to the NPT adopted by consensus a 64-point action plan that reflected the generally optimistic mood of the day but it fell well short of endorsing the call by many nations, the Red Cross and civil society, for a new legal instrument to prohibit and eliminate nuclear weapons. Perhaps the most significant element of the agreed document, at least in hindsight, was a simple sentence put forward by the Swiss delegation, with the backing of Norway, Austria and Mexico, expressing deep concern at the catastrophic humanitarian consequences of any use of nuclear weapons. At the time, few could have anticipated the resonance that these words would have in diplomatic circles. Few could have foreseen that they would provide the political underpinning for a groundbreaking initiative to alter, fundamentally, the international debate on nuclear weapons. The positive atmosphere that existed then in the disarmament world had much to do with the recent election of Barack Obama to the US presidency and his soaring rhetoric. 
Many believed that a new era had dawned for the abolition of nuclear weapons. One nuclear weapon exploded in one city could kill hundreds of thousands of people. And no matter where it happens, there is no end to what the consequences might be for our global safety, our security, our society, our economy, to our ultimate survival. In his first major foreign policy speech, delivered before a crowd of tens of thousands in the Czech capital of Prague in April of 2009, President Obama had laid out his vision for a world free of nuclear weapons. In rhetorical terms at least, it represented a major departure from the hawkish anti-disarmament stance of his predecessor, George W. Bush. As the only nuclear power to have used a nuclear weapon, the United States has a moral responsibility to act. We cannot succeed in this endeavor alone, but we can lead it. We can start it. So today, I state clearly and with conviction, America's commitment to seek the peace and security of a world without nuclear weapons. It was without doubt a significant step forward. But even then, the limitations of the new president's position were in plain sight. The goal of a nuclear weapon-free world would not be reached quickly, he said, perhaps not in his lifetime. And crucially, the United States would keep its nuclear weapons until all other nations had eliminated theirs. Make no mistake, as long as these weapons exist, the United States will maintain a safe, secure and effective arsenal to deter any adversary and guarantee that defence to our allies. Many disarmament advocates, particularly in the United States, chose to ignore the less promising aspects of the Prague speech. They were eager to rally behind a president whose vision, broadly speaking, was in line with their own. Many Europeans, too, embraced the new leader's high-minded oratory uncritically. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided that the Nobel Peace Prize for 2009 is to be awarded to President Barack Obama for his extraordinary efforts to strengthen international diplomacy and cooperation between peoples. The committee has attached special importance to Obama's vision of and work for a world without nuclear weapons. But by the time of the NPT Review Conference, Six months after the Nobel Peace Prize announcement, it was clear that the Obama administration was committed to pursuing an ambitious and costly program to revamp the US nuclear arsenal. This is disarmament campaigner Jackie Cabasso of the Western States Legal Foundation in April of 2010. If you look at the Obama administration's first budget request to the Congress for fiscal year 2011, you find that the request for nuclear weapons activities, that means activities having to do with maintenance, research and development of warheads and um, enhancing the infrastructure, is increased by about 14% to over $7 billion in inflation-adjusted dollars, the largest amount of money ever requested for those activities in the history of the nuclear age. The chasm between the rhetoric and reality soon became vast and undeniable. The New York Times reported in 2014 that doves who had once cheered the president for his anti-nuclear crusades 
were now lining up to denounce him. A new study had revealed that his record on dismantling old nuclear warheads was poorer than that of any of his predecessors, including the two presidents Bush. But the United States is by no means alone in its pursuit of major upgrades to its nuclear forces. Indeed, all nine nuclear-armed nations are investing heavily in programs to modernise and in some cases enlarge their arsenals. Collectively, they squander an estimated $100 billion every year on these weapons of mass destruction. A new nuclear arms race is underway. Against this backdrop of massive nuclear rearmament, the humanitarian initiative emerged and gained traction. Frustrated by decades of unfulfilled promises and alarmed by the modernisation programs, nuclear-free nations began to seize control of the disarmament agenda in an unprecedented way. For years they had occupied a back seat in disarmament forums, but no longer. The Costa Rican government has described this monumental shift as the democratisation of disarmament. The new order recognises that all nations, large and small, nuclear-armed and nuclear-free, have a direct stake in realising a world without nuclear weapons. All would suffer the horrific, widespread and long-lived consequences of a nuclear war. Placing faith in the so-called nuclear powers to lead us down the path to abolition had proven an ill-conceived plan. Why, after all, would these nations voluntarily relinquish weapons that they hold so dear, that they consider the ultimate guarantee of their security? The abject failure of the Obama administration to advance nuclear disarmament had confirmed for many that a new diplomatic process driven by like-minded nations was urgently needed. Jody Williams, who in the 1990s spearheaded the international campaign to ban landmines, or ICBL, explains the value of a process of this kind. I remember very vividly when 122 nations signed the Mine Ban Treaty in Ottawa in December of 97. Most reporters didn't care about 122 nations signing in two days. They cared about the fact that the U.S. didn't sign. And we kept saying over and over again that, yes, we would like the big countries on board. But what was most important was beginning the establishment of a new norm. What was most important was getting rid of the weapons in the ground that were killing people. And we firmly believed that by building the norm, the big countries would ultimately see the wisdom of the movement and they would join. And as we can see, the United States now is really on the cusp of finally totally joining the Mine Ban Treaty. It was the tremendous success of the campaign to ban landmines that had inspired the creation of ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, in 2007. This global coalition of non-governmental organisations is now the leading voice representing civil society in the humanitarian initiative. A new anti-nuclear group's been established, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. The new group was launched in Melbourne today. Among its members, a number of prominent Australians, including the former Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser. Following the launch in Australia, further launches took place throughout the world. 
Among the campaign's founding partner organisations were the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, the Mayors for Peace Network, and the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. The new coalition would work to build a powerful global groundswell of support for a treaty banning nuclear weapons. And like the ICBL, it would establish strong partnerships with governments and the Red Cross. What was so important about our work then was that we we took a weapon that had been in use for generations and, and we changed the framework of discussion. We turned it into an issue of humanitarian disarmament. And we were able to do that because we had a very strong and some would say revolutionary partnership between the NGOs of the ICBL, government allies who shared our same goals and visions for a world without anti-personnel landmines, the ICRC, International Committee of the Red Cross, came on board to ban landmines, and various agencies of the United Nations. Within five years, we took an issue that nobody was talking about and achieved a ban. And it was because of that partnership And it was because we helped change the framework of discussion like you are doing on nuclear weapons. That was Nobel Peace Prize laureate Jody Williams. In the First World War, they thought it was a blast to spray the other soldiers with mustard gas. World War II brought me and you things like weaponized botulism and anthrax. But we don't do that anymore. We don't do that anymore. We don't do that anymore. But we're apparently still basically totally okay with the threat of nuclear war. It's a little odd considering all the other crazy stuff that we used to do before. It's high time we didn't do this anymore. By March of 2013, it was full steam ahead for the humanitarian initiative, with the Norwegian government hosting the first ever diplomatic conference on the humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons. This historic gathering of experts, officials and campaigners sought to demonstrate the unacceptability of nuclear weapons on humanitarian grounds. Although it had been billed as a purely fact-based discussion, few doubted that Norway's intention was to lay the foundations for negotiations on a global nuclear weapon ban. Just six years earlier, it had hosted a similar conference on the dreadful human harm inflicted by cluster munitions. Within two years, those weapons had been outlawed. As Norway's foreign minister, I wish you a warm welcome to Oslo and to the Conference on Humanitarian Impact of Nuclear Weapons. This is an important moment. For decades, political leaders and experts have debated the challenges posed by the continued existence and further proliferation of nuclear weapons. This conference, however, takes a different starting point. It raises a very deep and serious question. If nuclear weapons actually were to be used, what would the consequences be? Would we be able to handle the humanitarian catastrophe that would follow a detonation? That was Espen Bart Eider. Close to 130 governments attended the conference in Oslo. Conspicuously absent were the five nuclear-armed nations of the NPT. A few days beforehand, they had announced a joint boycott. But their non-attendance served only to bestow greater significance on the conference and allowed for a more constructive exchange of views. For campaigners, this was an exciting moment, full of possibility. 
More than 500 people from 70 countries took part in ICANN's civil society forum, held in the days before the official conference. Among the speakers was veteran anti-war activist Martin Sheen, popular for his role as President Bartlett in the US TV series The West Wing. I've been an actor all my life. In fact, I have no conscious memory of ever not being an actor. But while acting is what I do to make a living, activism is what I do to stay alive. And so that... uh, So in my own small way, I've come here to encourage you to keep on keeping on with your incredible and inspiring global call to all states, international organizations, civil society organizations, and everyone to acknowledge that any use of nuclear weapons would cause catastrophic humanitarian and environmental harm. That there is a universal humanitarian imperative to ban nuclear weapons The Oslo conference concluded on an optimistic note, with Mexico announcing that it would carry forward the initiative by hosting a follow-up conference. A process was now underway. Norway's foreign minister summed up the proceedings. Together we have made this conference into a great success. I believe that we have succeeded in reframing the issue by introducing the humanitarian impact and the humanitarian concerns at the very centre, at the core of the discourse on nuclear weapons. I know it's upsetting, but let's not be forgetting Armageddon. Yet I'm still a hopeful man. And I'm a big fan of the plan to ban nuclear weapons. The humanitarian initiative continued to gain momentum in 2013 with the convening of a high-level meeting on nuclear disarmament at the United Nations in September. Presidents and prime ministers of nuclear-free nations lined up to denounce nuclear weapons as inhumane and unacceptable. One after another, they demanded a ban. ICANN's Nosiswa Bakwa spoke on behalf of civil society. That nuclear weapons have not already been clearly declared illegal for all, alongside the other prohibited weapons of mass destruction, is a failure of our collective social responsibility. The time has come for committed states to correct that failure. A treaty banning nuclear weapons is achievable. It can be initiated by states that do not possess nuclear weapons. Nuclear armed states should not be allowed to prevent such negotiations. History shows that legal prohibitions of weapon systems, of their use or their possession, facilitate their elimination. They become illegitimate. They lose their political status and so do not continue compelling money and resources to be invested in their production, modernization, proliferation and perpetuation. The new treaty will perhaps be the most important tool in our collective work towards eliminating nuclear weapons. And this tool can actually be achieved now. It will take courage. It will take the leadership by states free of nuclear weapons. And you will have the support of civil society. My name is Nosizulise Kialiboja Sidzumo Bakwa. And I'm a campaigner from ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. Campaigners like me, from all around the world, are demanding action. 
to finally achieve the outlawing and elimination of nuclear weapons. It's time. 99 Jahre Krieg ließen keinen Platz für Sieger. Kriegsminister gibt's nicht mehr und auch keine Düsenflieger. Heute zieh ich meine Runden, seh die Welt in Trümmern liegen, haben Luftballon gefunden. Denk an dich und lass ihn In February of 2014, 146 nations gathered in the Mexican state of Nayarit to build on the progress made at the Oslo conference. The opponents of a treaty banning nuclear weapons had by this time begun honing their talking points and devising a strategy of resistance. For the most part, these were the military allies of the United States. Among the most vocal was Australia, a nation that claims the protection of US nuclear weapons. Its new Conservative Foreign Minister, Julie Bishop, roundly dismissed what she termed the emotionally appealing argument to ban the bomb. The horrendous consequences of nuclear weapons, she said, are precisely why deterrence has worked. Germany fretted that a ban might antagonise those nations that possess nuclear weapons, weapons which in its view had helped keep the peace. But these voices of a former time were drowned out by a melodic chorus of pro-ban statements from the nations of Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean, the Middle East, Southeast Asia and the Pacific. The chair's summary of the conference reflected this overwhelming desire for change. Mexico's Vice Minister for Multilateral Affairs, Juan Manuel Gomez Robledo, received a standing ovation when he declared Nayarit a point of no return. We need to take into account that in the past, weapons have been eliminated after they have been outlawed. We believe this is the path to achieve a world without nuclear weapons. The broad-based and comprehensive discussions on the humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons should lead to the commitment of states and civil society to reach new international standards and norms through a legally binding instrument. It is, the view, it is the view of the Chair that the Nigerian Conference has shown that time has come to initiate a diplomatic process conducive to this goal. Nigeria is a point of no return. This bold closing statement raised the bar considerably for the third conference on the humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons, which Austria had just announced. NATO states in Australia, unsuccessful in their bid to quell the enthusiasm for a ban, left Nayarit fuming. You've just heard part one of a two-part series on the new movement for a nuclear weapons ban, written and spoken by Tim Wright and produced by Matt Kelly and Jem Rommeld for the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Part two in the series will be broadcast on the next edition of The Radioactive Show and will focus in on the most recent developments in the humanitarian initiative to ban the bomb. 
The Radioactive Show is produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Melbourne on Wurundjeri land and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. You can get in touch with us by emailing radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com or find our page on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Come and at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voice is broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing whitefellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe.